Um, So the first reading is from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do not be far from me. The trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay, you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack, of, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast out lots for my garment. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you, you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to this cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will, will serve him. Future generations he will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to the people yet on board, he has done it. And the second reading is Luke chapter 23, verse 20 to 25 and 32 to 46. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke out to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty, Therefore, I will not have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear the Lord, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. (coughs) Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, today you will be, be with me in paradise the death of Jesus. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he, and he, when he had said this, he breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> wasn't sure I wasn't to end it. So let's quickly pray for Tim. Father God, we just thank you for Tim, and Lord, we just pray for him now, Lord. We pray you will fill him and refresh him with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that he will just speak words of truth from you. Lord, pray, pray that you will just soften our hearts and open our hearts to hear what you have to say to each of us tonight in your name. Amen. Amen. It's Tamsin. Thanks, Ellie. So we're kind of... Um, Moving through this uh, season that we've been doing, we've been looking at voices around Easter, through the Easter story. And I guess if you've been around church for any amount of time, one of the joys, but possibly one of the challenges, is that these are really familiar words. The kind of the, the accounts of Jesus on the cross, his crucifixion, his trial, all of that are, are familiar to us. But sometimes I think familiarity does maybe not breed content, I hope, but it does breed kind of like a apathy or a blaseness or a kind of we, we lose the power of it and so part of this whole journey through Easter is to try and capture again the mystery and the wonder and the power of the Easter story we've kind of if you've been with us over any weeks they're all recorded online and also the Lent talks we've been doing on Wednesdays they're also now online on and in fact on our YouTube channel which kind of has different voices so over the period we've looked at um, Judas at Pilate at Caiaphas the high priests we thought about the thief on the cross uh, Thomas, um, and t- tonight we're thinking about Jesus, Jesus' words on the cross. We've had one of the gospel accounts. There's actually several gospel accounts that cover all the different um, things that he says, uh, and we're going to quickly whiz through those. Um, and there's seven particular words, seven kind of moments of dialogue, seven particular words that amazingly, to help us, they all begin with F. I know, I know. Strap yourselves in, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I have to say, each one of these one words and the the passage that I'll give to you that's linked to them could be a whole sermon in itself. I mean, genuinely. Um, So over the next two or three hours, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of rattle through these as quickly as we can. (laughs) It's funny because it's true. No, we'll we'll try and get through it quite quickly, but I don't want to kind of glibly rush through them. But at the same time, I want us to think about some of these things Maybe one of these words, particularly God wants to speak into your heart or circumstances, or one of these phrases, one of these kind of moments on the cross. So we're going we're gonna to look at them. We're going to get through all of these seven. We're going to start in a moment with forgiveness. Father, I want to pray for us as we think about Jesus, these hours that you hung on a cross and the things that you spoke from that cross. Lord, was so divine. They weren't just random utterances. They were prophetic. They spoke, they fulfilled scripture written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. They were moments that open our kind of a window into the nature of God. They're moments that give us a glimpse of who you are. So help us in these few moments to just reflect on your voice, Jesus, on the cross and what it might mean for us today and what it might mean for the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want to look at is Luke, if you're taking notes, Luke 23, verse 24. It says this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do are doing. 
and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I, I guess to say the cross is all about forgiveness is kind of perhaps obvious. But at the cross, we see this staggering power of forgiveness at work. And when we consider the weight and the burden of all our mistakes and all our brokenness and everything that was hanging on Jesus and the whole of human history, we realise that it's at the cross that we truly can see and find forgiveness. In the shadow of the cross, I want to say this, there is no sin that's too dreadful, no act that is so outrageous or shame that's so overwhelming that it cannot be forgiven if we before the cross bow the knee and ask for mercy and forgiveness. That's the power of the cross. The most awful sinner can find forgiveness. And here Jesus hanging on the cross offers forgiveness from the cross. The first words that Jesus speaks after being nailed to the cross are ones of forgiveness. Jesus completes his work and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That right there is the gospel at work. Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Luke 19 verse 10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his purpose. That's what he was about. That was his longing, to seek and save the lost. And even on the cross as he hung there, with the brokenness of the world on him, having been beaten and spat upon and ridiculed, and his clothes being ripped and taken from him and lots being cast for them and everything that kind of he was... Even then, in him there's a longing to forgive. Isaiah 53, 12 prophesied about this Messiah that he would make intercession for the transgressors. That's what he's doing on the cross as he's looking at these Roman soldiers, as he's looking at the people who are mocking him making intercession for them, offering forgiveness, fulfilling that prophecy, Jesus in dying, so that we might be forgiven for our sins and be reconciled to God for eternity. That's what Isaiah prophesies, the Messiah to come that's going to make intercession for the transgressors, for the sinners. And he's doing that. The wonder of the cross is that power of forgiveness, which is available to us all. Forgiveness for the disciples, the ones who abandoned him, the ones who ran away and fled in the night. Forgiveness for the fickle crowds who one minute have been shouting Hosanna and the next minute they're shouting crucify him. Forgiveness for the soldiers, the very soldiers who nailed him to that cross. Forgiveness for those who cast lots for his clothes. Forgiveness for the hardened hearts of the religious enemies, for the priests, the teachers who despised him. And of course, forgiveness for every single person on earth who's ever sinned or made a mistake. Forgiveness for you and for me. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Say all. All. Wow. Pentecostal. I'm going to read that verse again. I might get an amen. 1 John 1, 9, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. <laughs> Thanks, Libs, you can always count on me. I mean, that's quite a radical verse, but that's truth. It's the power of the cross. Not just to make us slightly better, not just to help us in our limp through life, but to cleanse us from all wickedness. Man, we need that in the world right now, don't we? Wickedness to be cleansed. And I have to be honest and say, I need that in my own life too. Well, the cross is the solution. 
It's where we find mercy. Okay, what about the second one? I said I'd try and rattle through them. Faith. Here's a verse from Luke 23, 43. Jesus answered him. This is to the thief on the cross. You'll recognize it. Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, there's lots of theological debate about that verse and about where the comma is. Does it, is it truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise? Or is it truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise? I don't really care. The truth is that that thief who was broken and a sinful man and in the Romans' eyes deserved to be on the cross, well, Jesus offered him hope for his tomorrow and for eternity. Whether that was that day or whether it's in the time to come, I have an opinion on that, but we won't pre- I'm not preaching on that now. The point is, the cross is a point of assurance of salvation. Not a vague hope, but a certainty. Absolute certainty. We see in, in this moment, in this passage with the thief on the cross, we see faith at work, real faith, saving faith that has an instant impact and transformation. The whole account of the thief on the cross illustrates that the way of salvation is actually really, really, really simple. There's not a test that you have to pass. You don't need a theological degree. You don't need to understand everything. You don't have to have a great understanding of the whole gospel message. And you don't have to kind of know your Bible inside out and be a faithful Christian who's lived as best as you can. All of that's nonsense. No, 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 no. It's not about that. It shows us that no one is beyond beyond hope of redemption. That actually, while you've got breath in your body, it's not too late either. It's not faith. Salvation is not derived through our effort. You can't earn it or work for it. It's my birthday soon. I'm sure you all know that. It's all in your diary. If it isn't, why not? Star Wars Day. May the force be with you. Just put it in your diary now. Um, It's actually quite a special birthday for me. Now, we all love presents, don't we? Say again. 21st, it is. My 21st lives. Thanks. Um, We love getting gifts, don't we? All of us love getting gifts. Even if we say we don't, the truth is we do love getting gifts. And when I get a special gift on my birthday, several special, many special gifts, several, as I'm expecting, I assume the givers won't in return be expecting a cheque or some sort of payment back for what's being given. At least I hope they won't be expecting that back some sort of reimbursement. A word of thanks is usually, you know, all that people ask for. As long as it's a nice present place. But Martin Luther, some of you might know Martin Luther, his great discovery, and it was a significant discovery for him that has affected the whole of kind of church human history since that, his great discovery in Romans 3, which changed the nature of church history and faith as we know it, is that salvation is a gift like that. God's forgiveness and friendship is offered to sorry sinners like Luther, to you and to me as a free gift. It's not deserved and it can never be earned. We just need to be desperate for Jesus. All who turn to Jesus, you know, he wants to seek and save the lost. And in that moment on a cross, when that thief who's next to Jesus says, we deserve to be here, but this man didn't deserve to be here. Jesus, will you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus turns to him and says, yeah, of course, son. You're in. You're with me. Because Jesus sees a heart that longs to be with him. It says this in Romans 3. Romans is a, man, there's so much stuff in there. I'm going to read to you from the Passion Translation, which I kind of like. This is Romans 3, 21 to 22 and verse 24. But now, independently of the law, 
The righteousness of God is tangible and brought to light through Jesus, the anointed one. This is the righteousness that the scriptures prophesied would come. It's God's righteousness made visible through the faithfulness of Jesus. And now all who believe in him, that's the deal, isn't it? Like this man on the cross that simply just believed and trusted in him. All who believe in him receive that gift. For there's really no difference between us. For we've all sinned and are in need of the glory of God. Yet through his powerful declaration of acquittal, God freely gives away his righteousness. His gift of love and favour now cascades all over us. All because Jesus, the anointed one, has liberated us from the guilt, punishment and power of sin. It's a great translation from the Passion, actually. It's really, really good. In that moment of desolation, something inside this criminal rises up. Faith rises up and he reaches out to Jesus. Something blurts out of his soul. Jesus, remember me? And Jesus' response is immediate. Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Faith, that's all it is. That's what we see in action at the cross. The mercy of God is always ready to reach out to and save a soul. Even at the last minute, God generously opens the door of heaven to those who repent of their sins. That is good news. That's why the gospel is called the gospel. Good news. Number three, family. We all find new family at the cross. At the cross, I became part of a new family. My family, look at you all. You're all lovely, aren't you? Jesus points John to Mary and says, Behold your mother on the cross. This is what he says. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Family is important to God. It's interesting. There's kind of that whole weight of family. We, we kind of feel that here. We don't always get it right, but our longing is to be part of family and to model family. What does that mean? Jesus points, as I said, John to Mary and says, Behold your mother. In another place, there's a fascinating account. Jesus, when kind of they say, Oh, your mother's outside and your brother's, and, and Jesus says this, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I think what I want to say from this bit as well is that Jesus is never too busy to attend to our deepest needs. And he sees John, this disciple, he sees his mother, he sees their grief, he sees their pain. And this wasn't just a spiritual moment, you know, of Jesus, I'm saving the world. Yeah, I'm saving the world. No, he looks at Jesus, he looks at John, he looks at his mother, and he sees their pain. And even while he is enduring the entire global history of human brokenness in his body, the Holocaust, the gas chambers, the war in Ukraine, the refugees, the brokenness of sin and anger and violence and hatred, and as he carries all of that in his body, he looks down and he sees these two people broken. And his heart goes out to them. It's beautiful, it's remarkable. And, and he wants to help them. He wants to help them from the cross while he's carrying all of that. And he's saying, John, look after this mother. I love her. Be a son to her. Mother, be 
a mother to this boy. That's the heart of God looking for connection and relationship and building family and unity and oneness. He could have been crying out for comfort in in that moment, in his suffering, but he chooses to comfort and care for his mother. Relationship and care for one another, a key part of what authentic community must look like. We're made to belong together, to love one another. I guess I will always want to invite us into a deeper fellowship with one another. That's, there's a cost to that, there's a challenge. It's easy to remain distant, it's easy to back away, particularly when we've been hurt. And let's be honest, we hurt each other a lot, don't we, unintentionally. But God wants to knit us together in love and fellowship and family, place of security and nurture and discipleship and sharpening and encouragement and blessing. Family finds a place at the cross. Number four. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, and this is Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lava samachani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a powerful, painful cry, isn't it? Sometimes referred to as the cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is an answer to that question. And I would suggest that the answer should make us all tremble. Because the answer is my sin and your sin. That's it in a nutshell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of you and me. It was my sin that caused God to forsake him. And if my sin would cause such an awful thing to the prince of life to happen, then I need to recognise that, the kind of dreadfulness of sin, and to therefore forsake the very sins that put him on the cross, that made him need to be on the cross. At the cross, I need to forsake and leave my sin. The bottom line of this is that on the cross, in that moment... However we understand it, Jesus was completely alone, facing loneliness like no other person in all of human history. God the Father, this is the Father who he had eternally dwelt with in the perfect oneness of the Trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, from the beginning of eternity, Jesus had been at the heart of that. In this moment, there's a kind of desolation, a separation as he hangs on the cross. His words point us to the cost of the atonement. Sin isolates man from God. Sin cuts off Adam from God in the garden. Sin cuts off Jesus from the Father in this moment. Not his sin, our sin that he carries. Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. And so I guess therefore if, if our sin put Jesus through such agony, We can't afford to be casual about sin in the church. God is looking for a holy people. Does that mean we're we're always perfect? No. But let's seek after holiness and recognise the pervasive, destructive nature of sin that lies to us. It says, oh, it's not that important. Or where boundaries consistently move because society says, well, you don't need to think that anymore because we've moved on. 
But Jesus says, no, sin is sin, is sin, is sin. But there's power over sin in the cross. If we really love God, we need to hate sin. That's what scripture says. So when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? He was inviting all those who beheld him on the cross to consider why he's there and to respond. He's taken our place. Jesus was forsaken of the Father for our behalf, for our benefit. Isaiah 53 says this. I love this passage. Prophesying of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So Jesus quotes this psalm, this prophetic psalm. says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it perfectly sums up what he was carrying in that moment. Jesus faced the pain of being alone so that we might never be alone. Jesus was bearing the wages of our sins and therefore he had to actually be forsaken of God so that we need not be forsaken of God. Sin causes suffering and Christ bore its full weight, including the emotional trauma of comprehending how sin distances us from God. Which leads us to our next verse. This is from John 19, 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So what I want to say first is this. I think Jesus was probably thirsty. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we need to grasp that, yes, Jesus was the son of God, but Jesus was a man. I love that verse when he's fasting for 40 days and he comes out of the desert and there's that kind of throwaway verse that says, and he was hungry. Yeah, no kidding. I think sometimes we think of Jesus like this floaty Timothy advert, wandering around sort of slightly serenely through life, being really kind to small animals and children and kind of like flicking his hair in the wind and the sunlight shining off his eyes and everything was beautiful. He was a bloke. Jesus was a man. I think he definitely got frustrated with his disciples. There were times we know he got angry in the temple and he turns over the tables. He didn't do it with a flounce. He did it because he was angry at what was happening in his house. And when he came out of the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, he wanted a McDonald's. He was hungry. Or something else, possibly. Something vegetarian for those of you that are vegetarian. And on the cross, after enduring what he'd endured, his beatings, his scourging, which often would have killed lots of people, you know, the pain of the trial, all of that in the heat of the sun... He was thirsty, no doubt. And yet at the same time, he's able to fulfill the prophetic scriptures. Psalm 69, 21, speaking of the Messiah, prophetically proclaimed, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst, which is, of course, what happened. The, the Romans hold up vinegar to try and quench his thirst. That's in, you know, John wants us to understand. And John was writing to Jewish writers of the day. He would have known Psalm 69. He's trying to go, duh! 
He is the Messiah because this is what they prophesied. This was what was prophesied about him. He didn't just kind of happen to get thirsty and Romans put some vinegar up. God was doing something glorious and fulfilling the scriptures. But execution by crucifixion was not a sudden death like being shot by a firing squad. It's long. It's painful. It's so barbaric that the Romans eventually banned it themselves. It's a lingering death under an eastern sun. His wounded hands and feet quickly inflamed, no doubt. He'd have had a fever, a thirst, and his body would have been dehydrated. Jesus was God, but fully man, as I've said. And Psalm 22 anticipates our Lord's passion. Speaking graphically, said this. We heard it tonight. Ellie read it. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joy. My heart has turned like a potsherd. It's like a dry, broken piece of pottery. My heart's turned into this. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. But you know, as I thought about this bit, this passage, I was reminded of something else last week if you were here. I had this kind of prophetic word about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You know that story where they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And it's so hot, do you remember, that the soldier who throws them in actually kind of is like burnt alive because it's so hot as he's thrown into the, the, the furnace. Hebrews 12, 29 says this. Our God is a consuming fire. That's not a very comfortable verse. I mean, we know lovely verses about Jesus being a lamb and God being the good, good father and, you know, his love endures forever. And we sing lots of lovely songs. And those things are true. But Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. That's not quite so comfortable. Scripture talks about the refining, purifying furnace of God. Zechariah 13.9, for example, says, And I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They'll call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they're my people. And they will say the Lord is my God. Scripture seems to talk about this kind of fire, the, the holiness of God that, that burns up the chaff. And, and you know, in a furnace, you, you chuck bits of iron ore in, or gold ore, or silver ore, and you've got all the mess. But in the raw heat of the fire, the scum rises up and can be taken off, and what's left is the pure gold, pure silver. But it needs to be refined in the heat of fire. Yes, the physicality of what Jesus suffered him, caused him to thirst. But I would suggest that more than that, Jesus endured the fire of God, God's purifying holiness. Jesus didn't need purifying, but God's fire devours sin and burns it up because it's just chaff, it's nothing. And God wants purity in you and me. And remember, Jesus had told the woman at the well that if she would ask him, he would give her living water so that she would never thirst. And here's Jesus hanging with the raw holiness of God as he carries our brokenness, the righteous fire of God, in a sense, around him. Meeting, sin meets its match in Jesus, in the perfect sacrifice. You know, the people would take a sacrifice, wouldn't they? And they'd, they'd, they'd burn it on the altar, rising to God. And here is the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, freely offered up on our behalf, though he was without sin, bearing the raw, all-consuming fire of God. So we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, could be freed from our bondage. Because in that story, who's in the midst of the fire with them? 
I believe it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. There's a fourth man standing in the fire with them, like one of like the son of, one of the sons of God. I think it's Jesus in the midst, because Jesus doesn't stand on the outside and go, it's all right, boys, you'll be out in a minute, and you won't even smell a smoke. No, he goes into the fire, and he releases their bonds as they come out. That's what's happening on the cross. Jesus in the midst of the fire, releasing our bonds so that we can be free. Number six, Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I wonder how well you know God as Father, the good, good Father. God is not your condemning judge. He's your heavenly Father, Abba, Papa. It's a good translation of that. The Heavenly Father who has promised to care for you eternally. For those who trust in him, death then is not some frightful leap into the unknown dark. Death is no longer a fearful enemy. St Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I love that verse. If I wasn't too scared to have a tattoo, that's what I'd like to have tattooed on me. So I've got it on a leather band that I wear around my wrist because it's less painful. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you know what? I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. While I have breath in me, it's for Jesus, and that's a joy. But I can't wait to go home. Can't wait to go home. I've got a beautiful wife and beautiful children, and I love life. But we're passing through. That's the truth. And this is not our home. We have a home in eternity. Death has lost its power. C.S. Lewis, back in 1949, in his book, Weight of Glory and Other Dresses, said this. I quite like it. It's not very comfortable. 100% of us die. And that percentage cannot be increased. (laughs) What he's saying is we're all going to die. And we need to face that truth. Death is a reality. And while as a physical people, our earthly life does have importance, Lewis goes on to say, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. I believe that. Charles Spurgeon, some of you will know him, famously said, never fear dying, beloved. Dying is the last but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about. Fear living. That's the hard battle to fight, a stern discipline to endure, a rough voyage to undergo. He's the good, good father while we're alive and he's going to take us into eternity. So for us, Like Jesus said, while we're still alive, why not reaffirm your trust in the loving Father into whose hands you can commit yourself? So whatever's burdening you today, future worries, present pressures, failed relationships, finance, fear of losing loved ones, fear of death, like Jesus, place it all in your Father's hands and find rest. Into your hands I commit these things, Father, because he's the good, good Father. And the final one, number seven, you'll be delighted to know. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Like this sermon. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his his spirit. This seventh phrase, seventh word, actually comes from a single word in Greek. We translate it as it is finished or it's done. It's just like, done, finished, accomplished. Such simple words. But maybe, 
I was thinking, maybe these are the most profound words that have ever been spoken in human history. It's done. Because its implications are endless and ever enduring. Jesus was sent by the Father to fulfill a task. And right here, it happens. That's why Jesus says it. It's finished. Speaking to the world and speaking to the Father, I've done it. You know, in the garden when he wrestles with the enemy and he prays, Lord, if there's any way that you can take this cup from me, Lord, let me do it. And that's not about, I mean, the cross is horrible. I mean, you know, the crucifixion was an awful thing. I could describe to you what happened. It, it, it's awful. But that's not why Jesus was sweating blood in Gethsemane. It's because he knew what he was going to carry, your and my sin, the brokenness of the world. And if there's any other way, Lord, let it happen, please, he prays. But then he says, but Lord, not my will, your will be done. And here, in this moment, it's done. He finished the horrible problem. There on the cross, Jesus finished what we started. That terrible problem that entered into the world when our first forefather, Adam, sinned and humanity fell. Endlessly resulting in kind of humanity subject to the curse that is sin. And here Jesus wins. This moment, the cross, this divine moment. That cross, the heinous symbol of Roman shame and death, becomes for us a pathway of peace in this glorious proclamation. Death is undone. The power of sin and shame is defeated. And humanity has the opportunity to be welcomed back into the embrace of God. Who so, this, this is the God who so loved the world, who so loves you, who so loves me, that he gave his only son, his unique son, as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish, but have a, a everlasting life. That's why he says it's finished. That's the great news of the gospel for you and me. And I guess that deserves, all of these things deserve a response on some level. So we're going to finish, and I'm going to play you a video. And um, this was a video that I made for um, primary school kids quite a few years ago. So it should be perfect for this audience. It's something that still moves me. It's a song I heard many, many years ago, possibly even as a student, which is kind of like when everything was black and white. And it was by someone called Julie Miller. The song was, um, How Could You Say No to This Man? I just want to read you some of the lyrics. Um, if you remember Cindy Lauper, some of you, her voice sounds quite like Cindy Lauper, but she wrote this song called, How Can You Say No to This Man? If Christ himself were standing here, face full of glory and eyes full of tears, and he held up his arms and his nail-printed hands, is there any way you could say no to this man? How could you look in his tear-stained eyes, knowing it's you he's thinking of? Could you tell him you're not ready to give him your life? Could you say you don't think you need his love? Jesus is here with his arms open wide. You can see with your heart if you'll stop looking with your eyes. He's left it up to you. He's done all he can. Is there any way you can say no to this man?